Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Natalia Reagan. Today, Annie Duke is back to explain what you do when you make the wrong decision. Then you'll learn why we may want to think about recycling our poop and about misophonia, a true hatred for certain sounds. Let's satisfy some curiosity. I don't know about you, but when I'm facing a big choice, I'm terrified of making the wrong decision. But today's guest says most people's idea of a wrong decision is totally off the mark. And knowing that can help you know what to do when your choice does lead to a bad outcome. Annie Duke is a world champion poker professional who's since become an author, corporate speaker, and a consultant on decision making. Her new book is called How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. I asked her, what do you do when you make the wrong decision? Well, first of all, it depends a little bit on what you define as wrong. So I think that one of the things that we do is we confuse like a, an outcome that we don't like with making a wrong decision. Um, and that's not true. It's like if you order the chicken and it's dry, it's not a wrong decision. It's the chicken was dry and that was in the set of possibilities. And you kind of knew that at the time that you ordered it, but you decided that, you know, all things being equal, you'd rather have that than the fish. It doesn't make it a mistake. Now, that seems like a silly little tiny decision, but we end up making that particular error a lot where we just think, oh, it was, it was a bad outcome. So therefore, it must have been a mistake. One of the most famous examples is actually from 2016 when Hillary Clinton lost Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. To this day, everybody's saying she made a really big mistake in those three states. But when you look at what the polls were saying at the time, the polls were saying, no, you're really safe in those states. Do we know in retrospect that there was a polling error? We absolutely do. But those polling errors you find out about after the fact. So I would agree that it was a huge mistake if there were lots of people writing about, oh, you know, I think there's a polling error and she's not spending enough time in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. In other words, if it was something that other people could obviously see and she was ignoring it, I would agree it was a horrible mistake. But go ahead and do the Google. You're not going to find all that stuff written. And so that's a really good example of looking at the outcome and saying, man, it was it was a bad outcome for her. So therefore, she must have made a big mistake. And but it wasn't really a mistake. So first of all, we want to kind of understand that that's number one. So I think a different way to reframe it is to not say when I made a wrong decision, but to, when to say things are turning out the way that I would have hoped. I think that that's kind of a better frame. I knew that there was a possibility it wouldn't turn out well. And I seem to be experiencing that. What do I do now? Basically, then you quit. And quitting is really, really awesome. So uh, you think about it as a new decision where you say, I could quit and abandon ship, or are there things I could do to make my situation better? And just think about it as a brand new decision and realize that quitting is always an option. And you just want to compare that to, does that look like a better option to me today if this were a brand new decision than sticking with what I'm doing? And if you decide that sticking with it is better, then you're going to figure out what you can do to improve the situation. And if you decide that quitting is better, you should just go ahead and quit. And things are much more quittable than we think they are. Like even if you think about the college decision, people go into that thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to make a decision for the next four years, except 37% of college students transfer in the first year. So this is obviously like a really quittable decision, but because we don't think about it that way, we cause ourselves all this stress and anxiety trying to think like we have to make this permanent and final choice. But if instead we said, I think I'm going to like it, but if things aren't going well, I can transfer, then it doesn't feel so bad when things start not going well because you already have a plan. 
Again, that was Annie Duke, decision strategist and author of the new book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. You can find a link to pick it up in the show notes. Every year, humans produce an estimated 677 billion pounds of poop. For reference, that is six times the estimated weight of the Great Wall of China. Wasted. Is the way we treat our waste, well, wasteful? Better yet, should we recycle it? And the answer may be yes. Human feces is seriously undervalued and overlooked as a resource. Just like the cardboard and aluminum we recycle, human waste is made out of lots of stuff that can be reused in a beneficial way. First of all, we could use it to make fuel, for instance. Human feces is up to 75% water, but a lot of the remainder is methane, which is a main component of natural gas. The methane produced by 1 billion people could power up to 18 million homes. Come on, who doesn't want a home powered by farts? Not only that, but the non-water, non-methane parts of poop make up an organic solid that has an energy density very similar to coal. This means that pound for pound, dried poop generates a similar amount of heat as coal does when it's burned. Those same 1 billion people would also produce poo residue equivalent to 8.5 million tons of coal. This is the coal you really don't want to get in your Christmas stocking. Repurposing poop as fuel has a number of environmental advantages. It could help us relieve ourselves from some of the reliance on fossil fuel by replacing a portion of the fuel we use. Even though burning poop would still release CO2, that carbon would not contribute to an increase in atmospheric carbon. That's because the carbon in our food came from the atmosphere through photosynthesis, not from an ancient underground reservoir. Recycling poop could help us retain valuable nutrients, or as I like to call them, poop-trients. Phosphorus, for example, is a nutrient that plants require for growth. When we eat those plants, we take that phosphorus and flush it away, where it ultimately ends up in the ocean. As a result, it's disappearing. In fact, experts estimate that our demand for phosphorus will overtake supply within the decade. Recapturing it from our waste would net us nearly 3 million metric tons of the stuff. And beyond the planetary benefits, recycling poop could be lucrative too. In 2015, a United Nations report estimated that poop fuel, as a resource, could be valued at $9.5 billion annually. In that case, maybe it's time to stop wasting our waste. Natalia, what is your most hated sound in the world? Oh, goodness gracious. Right now, oh, I don't want to be mean, but I have to say I live in New York and I just moved into a new place. But my upstairs neighbor is very loud and he doesn't mean it. But the footsteps here, it, it just grates on me like nobody's business. Do you have something that comes to mind? <laughs> I cannot stand the sound of someone chewing ice. I personally can't chew ice. It just sends shivers down my spine. And when I hear other people doing it, it's really intense and horrible. It's less intense for me these days. But yeah, chewing ice, it's almost unbearable for me, for sure. And most people have at least one sound that makes their skin crawl. But if these sounds or others like chewing, slurping, tapping, snoring, or even typing send you into an unreasonable rage... Well, you might be suffering from misophonia, a disorder characterized by a strong emotional or physiological reaction to certain sounds. People with misophonia traditionally haven't received much sympathy from science, but a 2017 study went a long way toward changing that. 
That was when a team of scientists led by Newcastle University in the UK took brain scans of people with misophonia while they listened to sounds that triggered their disorder. Sure enough, the participants experienced unusually heightened activity in an emotion processing area of their brains, which led to an increase in heart rate and sweating. The brain scans also revealed that their frontal lobes were actually structured differently than control participants. Researchers say the similar symptoms and brain changes among misophonia patients are evidence that they have a genuine disorder. These people have a true hatred for certain sounds. And that hatred can hurt them. A more recent study found that the more severe a person's misophonia, the worse they did on cognitive tests when exposed to their trigger sound. Researchers are hard at work on treatments for the disorder. So far, experts have used sound therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, applied relaxation, and even antipsychotic medication. It's too soon to tell which treatment is most effective, though. But the next time you're casually chomping away on a snack and feel someone giving you a death stare, consider that their unreasonable rage could be an actual disorder, and maybe consider snacking somewhere else. Let's recap the main things we learned today. Starting with, we learned that when it comes to making a bad decision, sometimes we need to adjust our perspective to see maybe it really wasn't a bad decision. And perhaps we didn't have the correct data to make the decision that would have given us the outcome we really wanted. And if you still think you made a quote-unquote bad decision, you can always quit and start over or pivot and start somewhere new. Given 2020, it's nice to know that, well, we have options moving forward. If there's something that you just really don't want to do every time you have to do it, just quit. It's great. It's great. I think it's a relief. Absolutely. I know that I kickboxed for years as a child and I did it up until I was about 15 or 16. And it, and I talked about it before on the show and it, it was a very intense school. You know, if you did anything wrong, you would get these demerits and you'd have to clean the toilets and we would kickbox in the dark. I developed really bad OCD while I was doing this, and I'm not blaming it, but it definitely triggered something in me. And then finally I woke up and I was like, you don't have to keep doing this. What are you doing? Like, stop. And we discovered that going number two can potentially be the number one self-sustainable replacement for some natural resources. That's because poop contains methane, which can be used as natural gas. The dried solid matter rivals the power of coal, and we can extract important nutrients like phosphorus to stay healthy. Maybe one day we'll be taking poop vitamins. Who knows? I think it's fitting that this story was number two in the episode. <laughs> poop is definitely your brand, I would say. <laughs> no, but I, you, I mean, it, there was no contest on who was going to read this story today. I love poop. I love how much poop can tell us in terms of conservation biology. I actually, years ago, talked about the Bigfoot show. I co-hosted a Bigfoot show, and we did a spinoff of the show because I taught the contestants that stool is the perfect tool when collected properly to study or look for new species. And so I had a show called Talking the S-Word. I can't say the word on the show, but you can maybe do the mental gymnastics to figure it out. And it was I co-hosted it with my... Bigfoot Bounty co-host, Dr. Todd Disatel. He's a molecular anthropologist, but we talked about poop and how you can use it to get environmental DNA from it. You can basically determine hormone levels or what species left it or even what individual, if you get down to the nitty gritty genetic component. 
And it's just really great stuff. So poop not only is an awesome resource potentially, but also I think it's pretty great when it comes to just, you know, being a researcher in biology. You can learn a lot from an individual or a species from their stool. We also learned that some sounds not only really irritate people, but they can also be downright painful. So when scientists were studying those that were hearing sounds that they hated, they saw that there was a heightened activity in the emotion processing area of the brain that also led to faster heart rates and sweating. Treatment is being tested out and it includes CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, sound therapy, and even antipsychotic meds. So for those of you, I actually, I dated someone years ago, Ashley, who I remember we went to a restaurant for the very first time and it was one of our first dates. And I remember I took a bite of something with a spoon maybe it was ice cream or something of that sort and my teeth touched the spoon and all of a sudden he said teeth on spoon and I could tell it really upset him and I felt really awful because at first I was like is he joking I don't know what you know but it actually a lot of sounds really bothered him and I think now looking back I feel bad because I think he actually may have had this could have been yeah I definitely have known people with the silverware on teeth thing for sure I forgot about that one yeah it's a big one Yeah. Teeth on spoon was a thing for a while. I had to really be mindful. (laughs) Yeah. Because sometimes I'm sloppy. I'm just like, oh, oh, shoot. (laughs) But it's also, you know, it's just the way you eat. And so it's hard to be super conscious of something that is just so natural. Today's stories were written by Anna Todd and Cameron Duke and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Script writing was by Natalia Reagan and Sonia Hodgen. Today's episode was edited by Jonathan McMichael. And our producer is Cody Goff. So how about you make a good decision and join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Curious.